welcome to Get Undressed, the podcast that gets under the skin of the fashion industry. Brought to you by Dressed, the world's first luxury styling game. I'm Victoria Moss, Fashion Features Director at Dressed, and I'll be your host. At Dressed, we want to help style a new fashion era, one with inclusivity and diversity at its core, where everyone can feel represented and at home. In a year when everything has been thrown off its axis, it feels particularly important to reframe the conversation around fashion. So in each episode, I'll be interviewing a luminary figure from the fashion world and hopefully finding out what makes them tick when we ask them to take the dressionaire. We like to think of the dressionaire as a personal and stylish guide to life in all its varied forms, looking at the power of fashion and how it can be a force for good rounding out the belief that to be well-dressed is far more than the sum of your outfit. It's how you live, think and act in the world. It's a mix of questions designed to get them talking and us thinking. Today's guest is the brilliant Anya Heinrich. Anya launched her eponymous handbag label in 1987 at age just 19 and has since used her knack for combining beautiful design with impeccable practicality and a strong dose of irreverent wit to create a globally recognised brand. From crumpled crisp packets to ketchup bottles, nothing is off limits to be given the luxury Anya twist. She was the first accessories designer to show on schedule at London Fashion Week, taking collection presentations and turning them into artful, immersive entertainment, from underground sweet shops to the world's largest bean bag. Emma Watson, Kerry Washington, Kate Moss and the Duchess of Cambridge have all carried her bags and in 2017 her MBE was upgraded to a CBE in recognition of her contribution to the British fashion industry. Anya, a very warm welcome to Get Undressed. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> ah, how are you? Good. Although it's the first day of the sort of beginning of the, the next lockdowns isn't it it's a weird old time hey but we we push on trying to be positive and kind of keep the teams all kind of smiling so it's a strange moment but I'm I'm really well otherwise thank you yeah great yeah I know yeah it's been um yeah lockdown the sequel I don't think anyone's really that thrilled about it um how's it been for you this year well, you know what? I'm I'm always a sort of make the best of everything person. I mean, clearly it's it's a it's a terrible thing for for you know for, for the economy for people you know for people losing loved ones. It's kind of there's no nothing fun at all or good to come out of this horrible time. But they always don't they say never waste a good crisis. And um, I yeah, think, I know, like it's that. about really trying. Yeah, well, it's a, there's, there's nothing good about this crisis, honestly. But I think um, it's important to think about what you can do. And actually, it forced a lot of things that actually were very much already in train for us. And it's forced us to really sort of, um, or actually allowed us to embrace really kind of cementing those changes. And I think actually, frankly, a lot of them are long overdue. So it's been a pretty useful, we've tried to make it useful time. Um, and, and who doesn't love slightly cancelling out their diary and actually having time at home? So <laughs> that's been pretty nice. So I'm always trying to find the, find the positives. Yeah. And are you still at home or are you going back in into the office I'm in the office um, sort of three days a week, probably. And um, we're a very sort of skeletal team, especially now, actually, because I think it's important for the people who do need to be here. We just want to really make sure that they feel safe to work. So you yes. know, we're normally sort of 60 people and we're currently probably about sort of 10, I would say. So suitably sort of distance and spaced and um, 
And of course, I think a lot more people actually do really want to come back to work now. And we're having to be um, very sort of careful about that to make sure that we we just keep a very safe workplace. But uh, it's nice being in the office. It's nice to kind of go somewhere. And so, uh, you know, it's a sort of different time, isn't it? And I think you're right. It's going to be sort of different and with less good weather. I think it's harder for you know, some of our younger guys who are, you know, sharing flats and sharing one kitchen table, trying to do Zoom calls. It's not easy, actually. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, definitely. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about the London's V&A exhibition um, on bags, which has been pushed back now, but is is opening. And it sort of looks at the power and impact of bags through history uh, with everything from Margaret Thatcher's Asprey handbag to silk purses from the 1600s and Louis Vuitton trunks. Um, and also your sort of rather prescient I'm not a plastic bag um, which I think originally sold for £5 as part of a charity project in Sainsbury's, um, but was really a sort of early mark in the ground for this idea of responsible sustainability and fashion. Can you tell me a little bit about where the bag originated from and what it's now, you know, what it's like for it now to be in, a, in an exhibition? <laughs> well, Firstly, I'm thrilled that V&A are doing this exhibition and it's so yeah. tough for these cultural institutions. And the V&A, by the way, is one of my most favourite places in the world. It's where I used to sort yes. of wander around for inspiration when I was starting designing. So it's, it's so important. Um, it, it's part of the creativity of this country, I think, actually, because so many ideas come from it. Um, so it's great they're doing this exhibition and it's a really, it's a really thorough um beautifully created um, collection of, of really interesting pieces and it's funny the handbag isn't because I'm, I'm not a frilly fashion person you know I love fashion because because it makes people it changes the way they feel empowers people in a way it's, it's kind of interesting what it what it does actually I think and, and why it exists um, but also you know why the handbag exists and ultimately it's, it's a practical tool for carrying your stuff you know it's very interesting actually when you look through the history of the exhibition and see how it started and and what it's become and, and all the sort of the toing and the throwing. So I'm, I'm really excited to see it. Um, and yes, of course, it is, is a very great honour to have one of our pieces in there. We actually have some of our bags in their permanent collection, which are some of the um, what we call the Anya brands, which are like these little sweetie packets, which are all hand beaded. Uh, and that was a great honour too. Um, so for this exhibition to have the I'm a plastic bag or I'm not a plastic bag, the first version, it's super exciting. Um, th- that project is, um, well, I think every line on my face is to do with that project, honestly. <laughs> um, it, was a, it was something that um, we did in 2012. Um, and, or 2012? I'm trying to remember. Yes, I think it was 2012. Um, or was it actually earlier than that? My goodness, I'm having a sort of a break. I think it was moment. earlier. I, I think, think it was 2007, 2007. wasn't it? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, I got that sort of lockdown fog. Um, and um, <laughs> and so it was, It was. you know, it was early in the in the sort of conversation around the environment. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and the, you know, plastic as a, as a, you know, substance that's being so mistreated and misused. Um, and really, it was a bit of a light bulb moment when um, this organization called We Are What We Do, who are a sort of social change movement, um, came to see us. They had produced a book which was called um, Change the World for a Fiver. The book was a fiver. And there were 40 actions in the book, the first of which was, um, you know, wherever possible, refuse plastic bags. And it was talking about the, the abuse of single use plastic. And it, it was a sort of lovely moment for me because I suddenly thought, having heard the word environment and everyone saying we need to do something, but I wasn't sure what I could do as an individual or as a company. And this suddenly gave me a, um, a sense that I could use the platform of, of fashion and my platform, if you like, to communicate um, this misuse of plastic. And it's a fascinating thing, the plastic bag, because actually it's a rather brilliant invention. It's, you know, it's inexpensive, it's lightweight, uh, it's 
it's cheap um, and you know it's useful and in fact the man who invented the plastic bag invented it because he was so worried about how many trees were being felled to make paper bags which weren't very useful they got wet they split etc so it was the idea that you had one of these and you reused it for for your entire life which is indeed what he did and of course he would I'm sure be horrified uh, according to his son um, about the idea of everyone you know taking a plastic bag and throwing it away and taking another one and that's exactly um, what shouldn't happen so it's an interesting project so so we we kicked off with this um bag called I'm not a plastic bag which was quite simply um, a reusable shopping bag um, really with the idea of just um, you know causing awareness over the misuse of single-use plastic and trying to get lots of noise and so we we planted it in lots of very brilliant um, and kind celebrities to kind of really communicate and we, we sort of really used the the platform of the it bag a bit to to um, you know there was sort of scarcity um, and amazing people wearing it and something you couldn't normally get um, for a fiver, effectively. Um, and it went mad. I mean, it went absolutely mad. Um, I mean, I think 80,000 people queued in one day in the UK and it rolled on around the world. Um, you know, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Singapore, everywhere. Where I think the last launch was in Taiwan, where it's, you know, tragically 30 people and stupidly 30 people ended up in hospital because it was a stampede, which, of course, was the moment we immediately stopped it. Um, so, um, but, you know, for all the sort of the madness, it, it made a real difference. And the number of plastic bags was was significantly reduced post the project I think from something like nine billion a year in the UK to six um, and and then of course legislation which meant there was you know charging for plastic bags which has sort of rolled out and um, so it was a pretty you know political frankly project yeah it really um, started it was, that conversation didn't it I mm, think it, well I think it's one of, of very... many things it's not just us but it was it was certainly uh, significant I think yeah and, and certainly in a kind of mass consumerist way. So, you know, having it in Sainsbury's, I think planting the idea in the average person's head rather than it being a sort of um, more of a niche concern. Yes, we really wanted to take it to, if you like, the coalface, which is, you know, the supermarket. And Sainsbury's were absolutely brilliant and were very much at the forefront of Bags for Life and trying to encourage people to think differently about how they uh, use single-use plastic. So they were very brave, actually, because there were queues and it was, you know, it was very, every newspaper had to get a number 10 Downing Street for a discussion about it. It was, you know, it was pretty, pretty big project. Literally, it was literally the front page of every newspaper and I had journalists on my doorstep every morning and, you know, got quite, you know, quite aggressive at times. So um, they yeah. were absolutely brilliant. And I think we both felt that um, we we were sort of happy to just face it and and, and bring it up and, and make it something that was which much discussed. So, yeah, so it was a really good project, actually, a really good project. Incredible. And it's also inspired you this year to launch your I Am A Plastic Bag collection. And can you tell me a little bit about that and your kind of this focus for you on sustainability with the brand? Well, you know, it's interesting. So 2007, as we've now remembered, was quite a long time ago. And I think we, you know, we we, we really put a lot of effort and energy and, and resource uh, into that project, which was a not-for-profit project, obviously. Um, and I felt we made a big difference and it sort of really started to kind of kick off, as I say, with the legislation and so on. And so so went back to my day job, if you like. And um, and yet here we are in 2020, this is a significant year. Um, and um, before the whole pandemic, back in uh, February, um, I really felt, you know, we're, we're we're not that much further on. Yes, it's a hot topic. Yes, people are trying. But actually, we are still putting loads and loads of plastic into landfill. And actually, it's just ridiculous. Um, and I, I just feel, well, two things. Really. First, someone said to me in the, in the 2007 project, someone said to me, when you throw something away, there is no away. 
which it's so obvious, but actually kind of really stuck with me because I think if you imagine that everything that you threw away, you planted in your own garden, just imagine that for a second. And my garden in London is not very big. Um, you know, it would get so disgusting and so full that you would very simply stop taking stuff. You'd find ways to to, to not have to keep taking this disposable stuff. Yeah. And actually that word disposable should should not exist. Because really. it's not, um, exactly. <laughs> um, and so it really sort of made me think, you know what, we've just got to go a bit further. So I wanted to highlight two things really was that, well, the circularity, you know, how the, 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 the conversations moved on from awareness clearly to how can we keep things circular? So by that very simply, um, you know, if, if plastic bottles, you know, I think there's 8 billion tonnes of plastic on the planet currently, um, and all of which, you know, just goes into landfill. So how can we actually keep that out of landfill and reuse it and keep it in circulation? Um, so we spent two years developing this fabric, which was um, made out of uh, 32 half litre plastic bottles. Um, but it took time because I wanted to create something that was really beautiful. It wasn't just sort of this, 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 some, you know, some versions of that on the market already. And we created this very, very beautiful kind of um, canvas. Uh, in fact, it was so much like a cotton canvas that it actually got dirty like a cotton canvas. So we wanted to coat it on one side. Uh, and that was quite hard. No one had ever done that before. So we managed to find a way to extract um, PVB, um, recycled PVB, which is actually the plastic they use between the glass and windscreens. So if a, if a windscreen shatters, it's the bit of the film that actually holds it together. Ah, okay, yeah. Um, so we managed to, to extract that and repurpose that and use that as the coating on one side of the canvas. Um, so it was it's pretty complex um, yes. sort of R&D and, and frankly nearly killed us, I will be honest. Every single roll of fabric arrived with a different thickness and it was behaving differently in oh. different temperatures. I mean, when and, you do these things, they're complicated. Yeah, and how hard it is to just find the the people that can can create these things and you know who have the kind of skill or the the idea to to create it or to produce well, there's it. a lot of people who are working really hard in in this area and what's exciting to me actually is and i had a lovely example of it at a leather fair not so long ago where it's sort of twice a year me and my team um would you know go to these leather fairs which um there's one called linea pelle in bologna for example where all the, the 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 leather tanneries show their new designs and wares and skins and so on um and there was one stand that um was working on you know traceable uh, non-polluting leather you know so much kinder to the environment um and it was the early days in, in this um, shift. And what was interesting is their stand was absolutely rammed. And you could see all the other stands going, mm, hang on a second. And so what's exciting is that, you know, if you, A, there are a lot of people doing this, but if one, there's a, there's a tent pole, if one person does something good and it works, everyone flocks there very, very quickly, which is yes. why I'm quite optimistic. And I'm kind of properly fearful for the environment. I'm properly fearful for our planet. I mean, if you speak to, I've spoken to so many people over the last two years researching this project. I mean, it's really, mm. really frightening. Um, yeah. It's almost unpalatably frightening, um, you know, as in we can just about do something, I think, to stop this planet. You know, I think that it's going to become so overheated that everyone's going to migrate north. It's kind of terrifying. Um, yeah. And actually, you know, it's incumbent on all of us to use our innovation, our technology and our common sense to just think differently. And I think people are. So it is hard to, to do these things. Um, and you have to balance, obviously, consumption with also employment and, um, you know, keeping a, a businesses going that actually employ people, which, of course, you know, allows us to do um, all these good things. So it's, you know, it's it's a complicated subject. But, you know, what we have to apply common sense and we have to push on and push on fast, I think. And is it something you're developing further, this idea? 
Well, and we're trying to, in every sort of area of our business, we're trying to to do everything better, more sustainably, or that's an overused word, but, you know, more sensibly. Um, because actually there's an awful lot of stuff where it's a bit contradictory and it's a bit jingoistic. And actually we're just trying to kind of go, how can we, you know, we've just looked at all of our packaging. So we've changed everything to FSC, which is the, you know, protected forest um, certification. Um, we're looking at all our cotton to be the better cotton initiative. We've looked at everything down to our tape, which is cellulose, not plastic. We're looking at, um, you know, do we let's have less paperwork with all our packages that get sent out. Um, so we're just turning over every sort of leaf as we go. And I think it's really important, actually, because it's so easy to criticise. Um, and it's so easy also to publish fantastic targets that are 10 years away when you know that so many of those businesses won't have the same management team and they can go, oh, well, that was a previous target. You know, so I think it's about what can you do now? Get started, get your feet wet and don't worry about not being perfect. It's unrealistic. You're not going to be perfect because actually no one actually really knows what the perfect answer is for all of this, frankly. It's yeah, exactly. really complicated. And I've spoken to a lot of experts. So what makes sense? You know, how can you move things around less? How can you buy things more locally? How can you you know, how can you do all of that without busting up your business? Because if you, if you, you know, if you don't keep businesses going, uh, people then, you know, get hungry, frankly, and lose jobs. And actually, then the planet falls on everyone's priority list. So it's a very sort of, sort of gentle, sort of <laughs> sicky treacle, treacle that you're trying to walk through. But just apply common sense. It really is. It's as simple as that. But we need to do it quite quickly, I think. Now we are going to move into the dress genre, which is our hopefully fun run of questions. <laughs> um, fun I haven't got a drink in my hand. I'd be better oh, with a glass of wine. Oh no! Anyway. <laughs> Come on, morning, it's Friday. I do. I feel like in a pandemic, there's no rules about these things <laughs> That's anymore. That's a very slippery slope. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Okay, are you ready to start? <laughs> I'm ready. Great. Um, did you find the fashion world an easy or hard place to get into? Um, frankly, a bit of both. Um, I mean, I didn't go to fashion school. I didn't even do art GCSE. So it was a bit foreign to me, but I knew I wanted to do it because I was passionate about leather goods. Um, so in some ways, my my sort of innocence and my lack of knowledge was was helpful. Um and and people are very people are very helpful in fashion. So you know if you if you can produce something people want, they'll buy it. Um, so you know it's they're quite open to and that's it's lovely. They're open to innovation and, and new design. That's what they want. Um, one of the things that was just hard really was in order to get going, you needed to make things and you need craftsmen. And of course they often impose minimums and often you can't reach those minimums when you're starting. And that's the bit that was really hard. Um, so it's trying to find craftsmen and manufacturers who will work with you I, I spent many years talking about you know little acorns grow into big trees I guess I used to overuse that phrase um <laughs> trying to persuade people to make you know fives tens you know and then hopefully one day sort of you know 20s and then 50s um so that you can get going and of course what you need to make was something really spectacular to to get the attention of the buyers um who you know might not want to sort of take a bit of a risk with you when they've got proven um suppliers and so it needs to be great. And yet the craftsmen, you know, they want it to be simple because it's such a small, a small run. So that was the bit that was tricky. But you just have to yeah. be, you know, determined, really. And is it because I know the story you were was it 19 and you went to the went to Florence, to the leather markets. Yes, I was 18, I think. Yeah. So I went to, to after school, I went, I knew I wanted to work in leather. I just knew that was, I, I remember I was given a handbag when I was 16. I remember being fascinated by the craftsmanship and the, the how it all worked and, and you know, the, the sort of how it made you feel and the sort of the history of it all. Um, and so I wanted to go to Florence because that was very much the home of of leather. And, um, and so, yeah, that's how I started. I went out there sort of to kind of just 
get in amongst it, honestly. I did a language course that was my way in and um, found a bag that I thought would sell in London and found a factory and brought some samples back to London and, and that's how it really kicked off. Quite amazing to do that straight out of straight out of school. Well, it was, you know what, it was kind of Thatcher's Britain. It was like everyone start a business, go, go, go. It was, yeah. You know, everyone was starting businesses. It was a real sort of movement and momentum. Um, and I'm lucky that I come from a, a family of entrepreneurs. We, we always laugh and say that Christmas is like a board meeting um, with everyone <laughs> sort of delivering their end of year results. Um, so it wasn't so alien, but um, it was, there was a definite moment of, of you know, start businesses. And, and many of those businesses that started and have gone on to be really big contributors, actually. It's quite exciting. So we need, need to get that momentum back. Yeah, definitely. Um, did you have a plan B? When I was 18, no, probably not. Um, but actually, I mean, I was, I, I was, I'm sort of fascinated by music, actually. I actually um, was, that was another world I was really interested in, but but I, I felt that was probably a bit of a, a flaky plan B. So no, I really didn't. I would have found one. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's been the most useful career advice you've been given? Don't give up, actually. And remember manners. You know, I think those two things are really important. Um, you know, I, I'm it's such a, you know, I, I always think that the idea of just saying thank you and being kind and polite. And I think people think about the fashion industry as being a very sort of, you know, bitchy kind of, you know, sort of dog eat dog. It's not actually. Yeah. Um, and the bits that aren't, frankly, they don't tend to last. Actually, it's about relationships and it's about looking after people and, and being nice and, and building a team you love working with and, and, um, and you know, taking them on the journey. Uh, and that's, by the way, half the fun, I think. Actually, yeah, that's definitely. part of it. Who inspires you the most in the industry? So many people, um, actually. Um, I mean, I have some, you know, obviously some really good friends in the industry. Um, you know, someone who um, really inspired me was and, and does, is my very dear friend is Natalie Massonet, for example, who was so bold with her vision yeah. um, and so groundbreaking with um with what she, I mean, she created a whole new sector, which, you know, became, I remember the day it sort of surpassed, you know, sort of, you know, a Harrods turnover, you know, that moment when you've just, yeah. you go, wow. And I remember standing with her and she went, we just did a million pound sales today. It's the first time. And I was just, oh my God. And seeing that office for the very first time and walking um, down through all those desks. So, uh, but, but not only that, what she built, which was phenomenal, but the spirit with which she built it, there was a real sense of the most amazing friendships and loyalties and team and, um, and how that really, uh, you know, really, I mean, and the, the sort of the, the, the alums, if you like, from, from those days were a, a spectacular, really brilliant, talented people. Um, so she would be someone who very much inspired me and still inspires me. And those are my, my great, my great friends. Um, but there are so many people um, that, you know, are really very brilliant. And actually, I'm, I'm inspired by people who, at the moment, who are brave, who, who embrace change, because I think the industry is, frankly, you know, dramatically changing. Um, and uh, I always laugh and say, you know, that there must have been a day when, you know, the sword makers were feeling a bit sore because, you know, people invented machine guns. You know, there's a point where things do change and, and, yes. and you can sort of be left behind. And you have to be realistic about how things change. You know, there's definitely, you know, the digital opportunity obviously threatens the bricks and mortar opportunity. Um, and, you know, the social and um, digital communication opportunity obviously threatens the, the print world and you know of course there's there's winners and losers there and there's always things reform and change so it's, it's not there's not it's not black and white but you have to be realistic and 
I remember sitting next to someone very um, brilliant in, in, in our world who I love very dearly. And I remember she said, but I always go to Paris in September. And I sort of remember thinking, that's not the point. <laughs> the yeah. point is, what's good for business? You know? Yeah, and why I'm are you really going to Paris to, in yeah, September? You know, so you have to kind of go, you know, guys, sometimes this changes. And how exciting is that? What can we do? So it's about being a bit brave. And funnily, I think fashion can often be a bit old-fashioned, strangely. So it needs a bit of a shake yes. Yeah, for something that's supposed to be sort of setting the trends and being very mm. forward thinking, it, it can be quite stuck in its kind of old hierarchies and systems, I think, for sure. Yeah, it really can. Um, and who has helped you the most? Uh, so many people. Um, I have to probably big shout out for my, my darling dad, who um, is a great businessman and obviously not <laughs> at all particularly interested in fashion, but has has, has, always, has always been on my board and... Um, always just brings me right back to brass tacks which is you know cash stock <laughs> yeah. sales um and overheads you know that and it's just amazing to have i think in business someone who i mean i was laughing calling my harshest critic because he um you know he's he's very honest in, in the in the best possible way but doesn't sugarcoat it you know and, and um and actually you need someone like that who's just got your back who's 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 very aligned with your aims um, and who will tell it as it is. And I think that's that's really key. So um, he is amazing and a complete rock. And, and, and so many people, I mean, some of my early manufacturers, um, are, you know, I went to see, in fact, an amazing man called Larry, who really made some of my first handbags when I moved my production back from Italy to London. And I would drive to his house in Hanslow every night after work and go and collect the bags and they'd feed me supper and we'd sit and discuss and we'd make things and I'd take them to Fashion Week. And, you know, we had some really fun sort of formative times. And those people who kind of, you know, give you those those leg ups are worth everything in, in business. But then my team here are just amazing. I mean, you know, so and we just we're dear friends honestly and have all worked together a very long time yeah. some of them are retired now how scary is that <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you know just the most lovely people dear friends you know sort of you know um and, and I think that makes that makes work fun ultimately works also about having a nice time you know yeah it's pretty quickly so enjoy it while you can exactly what's been your most thrilling fashion moment um, you know, there's so many, but one lovely thing, I, I'm, I'm very proud to have been on the board of the British Fashion Council for 10 years, I think now. And um, and we had the lovely moment about two years ago when the Queen came to Fashion Week, yes. which is something that we had been working on for, for a couple of years. Do and you we know, were I, was, yeah. I was on maternity leave then. And having gone to London Fashion Week for like over a decade, I was, and a couple of other friends who were also on maternity leave, we were just like, we cannot believe the one the one <laughs> season we're off the queen comes <laughs> well it was it was the most amazing moment and yeah. we'd all had to sign something even stronger than nda i can't remember what it was uh, i mean basically it was already being treason to have spoken about <laughs> the fact that she was coming to fashion week quite literally it was a very sort of serious document yeah you know, my lawyer went oh we don't mess with this one um and um so it was top top secret and um and so no one knew and, and it's amazing how their security her security is is so brilliant because it's so good and yet it's so light touch there's not heavies coming in with big you know it's all very just very quiet and very discreet. how riveting um to see it that. was riveting and uh, i'm waiting for her majesty to arrive in the lift <laughs> um, <laughs> and how brilliant she is and how smart and on it and her you know she's just twinkly eyed and amazing yeah. um and then when she then we all then went into the um into the sort of runway area um, and no one knew but they could sense something was happening mm. um, and in she came and I don't think there could have been anyone greater to have wowed the fashion audience fun no. enough I mean you know it just there was it was it was electric the atmosphere it was really really special um, so what an amazing woman she is to achieve, achieve that in fashion <laughs> frankly <laughs> um, and what's been your least thrilling fashion moment 
You know, I don't think there's anything least thrilling fun of. I mean, even the sort of lugging suitcases onto trains over the years of, you know, we've laughed. I remember falling asleep on a box when I was so tired <laughs> in Paris, getting back in the taxi. I mean, you know, it's been there's, there's a lot of, you know, hard work. And you know, obviously there are moments that are quite scary when, you know, you've, you've you know, produced something and, and you know, it's sold really, really well. And suddenly you get that sort of a problem. And, you know, I remember when I was about 20, I sold some handbags to um, over to our little store in Hong Kong. And um, and the plating, which we had had done in a workshop in Hackney, this beautiful matte silver plating, actually, um, for some reason, I think I hadn't put a coating over the top because I wanted to protect the silver plating without having the sticky coating on the top. And, um, and of course, the humidity was turning all the silver plating black. Uh-huh. You know, there's been moments that are kind of in your life, you've got to recall <laughs> them all, you've got to pay for all the shipment, you've got to remake them all, you know, so you just can see any sort of any profit margin going out the door. And, you know, it's, it's those moments, they, they, they make you feel a bit sick. Um, but mostly they sort of, you know, you look back and laugh and you find a way through. So um, there aren't any moments that I would say are, are, um, that you dread. They're, they're all part of the experience, really. And can fashion be entertainment? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, for me, um, fashion is about emboldening. It's, you know, it's about confidence. It's making people feel great and, you know, and making people um, have their own identity. It's all about identity, ultimately. And, you know, it's very tribal, actually. Mm. Um, so so that's interesting in itself. Um, and, of course, um, you know, therefore, it can become, you know, you can turn the, the, the volume up very high and it can be you know, really entertaining and fun. And, and of course, the way it's presented can be absolute entertainment. I think, you know, it's become an, an art form. It is an art form. It's half art and half half just clothing, isn't it? Half something we just need. Um, but the art form part of it is is absolutely entertainment and, uh, and breaking new ground in terms of techniques and, you know, really sort of um, embracing uh, art in, in, a, in a different way of wearing it, which is, you know, you use your body as a canvas, really. Mm. Um, and what do you like to work with? <laughs> you can't ask me that. I don't know. Do <laughs> but I would hope to be kind and to be fair. Those are two things that I think are just actually they're the only things that I think are really important. Uh, it's very hard. I think as a as a you know as a as a boss, you have to sometimes make really tough decisions. You have to make decisions for the business because that's for the greater good. And um, and it's very hard when you have to make decisions that you know are right for the business that might not be right for an individual. And that really, by the way, is the worst, the single worst part of being a boss. Yeah. Um, and and yet I think, you know, you have to, that's your job. That's what you have to do. That's why you are the boss. But you can be kind and you can be fair. And I think that's really, really important. So that's those are sort of my two leading um, leading words, if you like. Um, but no, you'd have to ask my team. They'd probably say a nightmare, really bossy, and that I talk over everyone and that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> repeat my point until I get my way. I mean, who knows? You know? <laughs> but they'd definitely say I'm quite tidy. I am a very tidy person. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> um, and can fashion be a force for good? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, an I'm a plastic bag project was was um, an example of that, um, I hope. Um, and I think there are so many people doing fantastic things in terms of, you know, empowering supply chains that might not ordinarily get a look in, you know, empowering perhaps women in the workplace, uh, making sure it's diverse and fair. Um, I think that it was lovely to see how many people mobilized in sort of <laughs> pandemic one um this one being <laughs> pandemic two yeah. um and um and really um you know we, we actually did a project where we in fact we did two projects we were called up by the marsden the royal marsden hospital yeah um and um asked if we could help with ppe and um we found an amazing manufacturer in, in london um, and managed to find the fabric which is the most difficult part but also managed to to reach out to sort of our networks and say 
you know, first of all, supply chain networks, but also um, saying would people help fund them? And we managed to make and fund six and a half thousand um, hospital gowns. But also what was really exciting is, you know, washable, reusable, uh, not disposable hospital gowns. So we managed to find a fabric you can boil to very high temperature so they could keep them on site, wash them and use them the next day, like old fashioned nurses uniforms. You know, it's not rocket science. Um, and um, and I remember speaking actually to um, my now friend, Mr. Grundon, who um, we, we've done a lot of um sort of talking to and learning from for this um, plastic bag project that they do all the, the management sort of waste for London, um, Grundons and all the recycling. And I was asking actually about, you know, can you recycle this PP, this disposable PP and, and you can't because it's contaminated. So it all gets burnt. So, mm. you know, it's kind of not ideal. So, um, so, and I think a lot of people mobilized and, and I think therefore fashion absolutely can be a force for good. And it has, a, it has a great means of communication, yes, which is yes. quite special, I think. Um, why do you think we obsess over handbags? Um, well, sometimes for the right reasons and sometimes for the wrong reasons, honestly. I think, I mean, a handbag is a vehicle to take your stuff with you. That's what it is ultimately. So, you know, it's about, you know, and women like having things. It's sort of quite a sort of nurturing sort of um, part of women that like having the things with them. Um, and so obviously having all your things in the right place and all being organized and, and it being a thing of beautiful craftsmanship because there's something very much like a beautiful steering wheel in the car or, you know, uh, I mean, just, Beautiful craftsmanship is something that you treasure and therefore you keep and, you know, pass down. That's the kind of point, really, isn't it? Um, what I don't love about fashion and handbags when it goes wrong is that when they're just used as a sort of means of status um, and indeed when they're sort of of a season, that feels um, not smart, really, because they should be things you keep and use. And, and so I don't like things that are designed just for six months. That feels there's so much love that goes into a handbag when you see and when I as I do work all the time with craftsmen and you see the pride, like a sort of proud mum in their in their face when they when they pass you the first sample, you know, it's really lovely. It's hours and hours and often days of, of work and months. And if you take all the development of the raw materials and you know how it's all worked through to the final finished piece, you know, they should be treasured forever. So I think that's um that's what's important. Yeah, I love there's this idea um that the VNA explores in the exhibition about the sort of the the inside versus the outside of a handbag and how um, the outside is is kind of a public view for other people to see and perhaps be used as a you know to give off a, a signal or a, to show something and then the interior being very much your own personal space and I think I that's right I found I mean, that idea know, quite interesting yes well it's it's totally right isn't it it's it's um it's like your home really to a certain extent uh, and it is a little mini version of taking a bit of your home with you, isn't it? I mean, that's sort of the point. You've got what you need um, and, you know, anything that might comfort. And um, I always think about that, particularly on a plane, you know, when you're very sort of trapped and, and you know, actually sort of what you have in your handbag is, is you know, little bits of home, might be your cosy socks or your eye shades or whatever it might be. Um, so, yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a lovely way of looking at it, actually, and I'm sure that's right. And that's why I think people do obsess over them because actually it brings comfort as well as a beautiful thing. Um, and and it, it makes life work, doesn't it? That's the point. And one of the things I love about handbags is actually making women's life work better. That That's one of my fascinations, actually, uh, more than fashion, frankly. Yes. Uh, and what does being well-dressed mean to you? Well, to me, it means forgetting about what I'm wearing um, and smiling and being the best version of myself, looking people in the eye, feeling confident. You know how you feel when you feel good. You sort of stand that bit straighter and you you kind of smile with your eyes a bit more. So that's what it means to me. Um, and um, it's not about the latest thing. Actually, I kind of like being in clothes that I put on and I then forget about. That's the that's the, um, that's the sign of a really good outfit for me because I'm then not thinking, I'm not having to sort of suck in my, my tummy or stand up a bit straight because it's sort of digging in somewhere. You know, it's putting on something that makes you feel great, but also is something you have to think about. And that's that's a real win. 
Do you have a favourite fashion quote? Um, fashion quote? Uh, not particularly, but a quote that I, I sort of love, which is an Oscar Wilde quote, is, um, and I'm going to probably misquote it, but it's something like, be yourself, the other places are taken. Um, and that causes sort of pause for thought, I think. And actually it was very much the starting point for the little bespoke business that we have, which is one of my sort of quite where my heart is. I think it's one of my favorite parts of the business where you have things made that are absolutely not part of the season. They're part of you. You can have your own handwriting, handwritten messages put on and embossed into the leather. So it might be a you know a little wallet for a, for a father with a child's message, you know, like come home soon, daddy. But, you know, written in his four-year-old handwriting, which of course you can't go back and have a four-year-old. So it's, it's a moment in time. Um, and it has so many versions of, it's really more about presence, I suppose, about gifting, um, but making things that you really do want to keep. Um, so um, so that Oscar Wilde quote actually really inspired a whole business for me, which is which was fun. What piece in your wardrobe makes you feel confident? Um... I mean, you know, I would say it wouldn't I, but a beautiful handbag somehow. There's something very lovely about, you know, you can wear a pair of jeans and a pair of kind of cool trainers, but somehow if you have a beautiful bag, you feel a bit sort of more pulled together. There's that little bit of beautiful craftsmanship that, because I know we all want to wear, I think, quite that sort of athleisure sort of clothing, especially at the moment. Um, so it might be a trainer, it might be a track band, it might be, you know, a great pair of jeans, but somehow a beautiful bag feels, it makes you feel a bit more polished somehow. And what was the first handbag you fell in love with? Um... The the bag I think my mother gave me, which was one of her old handbags, which actually is an old Gucci handbag, um, and um, and it just was a beautiful thing. Um, and I remember, and I think I said, I think I just remember how it made me feel. It made me feel sort of slightly, you know, I walked a bit taller, I felt a bit more confident, and and just loved it, and I wanted to stroke it. So that was my first handbag. And what's your strongest childhood memory? Uh, Probably actually being in um, my father's factories, actually. I remember finding that really fascinating. I, I loved um, watching things being made um, and also kind of loved the whole office environment. <laughs> it's just I liked organising <laughs> things. It's really sad, isn't it? Um, so, um, but I remember that was quite formative in a way. And um, I quite like the tea break too because I had custard creams. Um, but, you know, seeing things actually being made was is, is interesting. And I think so often we're very disconnected from how things are made. Yeah, and in fact, true. when we opened our little bespoke store, my, my passion was to to have the craftsman in the store, which he still is and they still are. She often still is. Um, and um, so the craftspeople, I should say, not craftsmen anymore. Um, but it, it's very lovely, actually, when people connect to having to made. I often think children should learn, you know, how is a chair made? How is a table made? Yeah. How do you make a TV? Because they just don't know. And it, it gives you, it makes you appreciate things and it also makes you use things and learn to mend things as well. So mm. that's also really important rather than just, you know, there it is and it's gone. Um, so, um, so that's, yeah, probably one of my earliest memories. And what do you always have with you? Um, what do I always have with me? Um, probably a rotating pencil, actually. That's my um, my oh. very simple rotating pencil because I, I love to make lists and to sketch and to, you know, sort of jot things down. And I like, you know, often just a little sketch rather than actually a, a long sort of typed list. Um, I mean, you know, listen, how great is a phone? I mean, it's my camera, it's my wallet, it's my photo album. I mean, they're just genius things, you know, they're absolutely it's ultimate luxury, really. Um, mm. So, and I have often have a, just a lovely leather notebook, actually, which I will keep my lists in. So, yeah, all sorts of good things. <laughs> but those will be some of the key ones. And what do you always forget? 
well at the moment my mask god it's quite difficult isn't it getting yeah. a bit of of a mask so i end i end up it's annoying him to buy another mask i was like so stupid anyway that's just habit isn't it um so um so i'm not a very forgetful person actually but yes right now i'm having to relearn to sort of walk out the door keys you know ticket passport mask yeah. <laughs> and do you always feel confident no absolutely not i mean who does and um and I've just written a book, actually, and then which um, will be coming out not not too long, um, ah. which talks about this subject because I I think that it's um, really important that everyone knows that everyone, however confident they look, um, suffers from doubt, and um, and no one's very honest about it. And I think it's really important to talk about that. Um, and um, I think that often sometimes the most confident-looking people are just as um, just as lacking in confidence as well. So confidence is something that kind of comes and goes and um, and it's important you don't always have it because if you know you need self-doubt to kind of actually um, you know question yourself and consider situations. So um, so no, absolutely not. But who does? I think everyone would be lying if they said they did. Yeah. And how do you feel when you're the centre of attention? I actually don't love it. Um, I'm very um the whole kind of red carpet moment is my least favorite thing, I would say. Um, so no, that's not my favorite thing. Um, I would prefer to just be with good friends from my kitchen table. That's <laughs> yeah, and then then I can you know I can shout quite a lot and we we laugh with the family. And so we actually have a system called the spoon where we you're allowed <laughs> to speak if you hold the spoon because as it gets out of hand. But um, so there, I quite like being the center of attention. But, but <laughs> otherwise, not, not always really holding the spoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, grabbing that spoon. <laughs> Um, and what makes you feel vulnerable? Um, well, obviously, any family member not being well, or you know, if 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 there's anyone, any concerns at work. I mean, it's it's always people related, isn't it? Really, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's keeping a great team, keeping a happy and healthy family. Um, those are to be honest, beyond that, nothing much really. The rest of it's just sort of noise. And what song always makes you dance? Well, Zorba the Greek, I think probably would be the one. <laughs> I, I actually, I think it's impossible for anyone not want to dance with Zorba the Greek. Uh, what's your most loved movie? Oh, it's a really hard question. I don't know. Uh, so many. I literally change every week. I'm going to pass on that question because it's just impossible. Okay. <laughs> what's your favourite room at home? My kitchen. That's where life happens, really. Are you a morning person? I'm not really a morning nor an evening person, actually, to be honest. I'm sort of, I think I'm a mid-morning person. <laughs> do you procrastinate? Uh, I try not to. I do a bit. I try not to. I think it's the most wearing thing, actually. And I think as a, as a if you're running a business, you need to make quick decisions, good decisions or quick decisions. Um, but sometimes I also think you need to sleep on dilemmas. And often, actually, a bit of reflection time can make quite a different outcome. And often that's, that's important. And what's the most extravagant thing you've ever done? travel actually with my kids um that's where I've spent sort of any spare money I've ever had because I think um that's so important and of course that's the one thing that's so hard at the moment isn't it and I also feel guilty because you feel you shouldn't be traveling so I sort of slightly feel I need to hang up my travel socks for a bit and let other people um you know take their turn um but taking my kids I'm kind of keen to get them to all the continents to to really see different sides of life because I think it's the best education and it's also some of the most fun things we've done together and what keeps you up at night well, it'd be worrying about those, you know, health and happiness of family and, um, you know, health and happiness of, of my work team, really. I think those are, you know, those are the, those are the things, the significant things, really. Um, but, you know, obviously all the day-to-day, -day, you know, will I reach this deadline and <laughs> what's going on here, then everywhere, all the normal stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what's the best lesson you've learned so far in your life? Um, I think it'd be back to kindness, honestly, you know, which is that, 
you know, just remember how you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes. How would you feel and how would you feel to be treated in that way? And it's not hard, is it, to go that extra mile and just um, and to be to look at someone, be kind and to to do something the right way. So it's just never worth not doing that. How ambitious are you? Well, very, but not at the um, risk of treading on people. And mm. um, and I think there's a real line there, isn't there, actually? Um, because um, I think that's really important. So, yes, very, because it's fun to be ambitious and exciting, and, but not, not if it's not doing good, I think. Mm. What's your favourite cheap thrill? Chocolate. What's your favourite game? Um, it's what we used to call the silence game in the car when the children were little. <laughs> <laughs> I need to try that one. (laughs) Uh, And what has this year taught you, good and bad? Well, um, I think good that for me, some bits of it, and I feel really, really bad saying this because it's so unfun for so many and will continue to be unfun, but some bits of it have been the happiest time of my life, actually, just actually focusing back on on what matters. Um, But clearly, you know, it's um, it's going to be it's pretty frightening depending on how long this goes on for because it's 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 tough um you know supply chains business sales um you know so many aspects and and it's just it's hard um so i think it's you know it's about keeping everyone's communication is important honesty is important um and also just you know finding what makes sense you know because actually there's always a product that makes sense that helps people so um just not giving up <laughs> probably yes for sure um and what are you most proud of my family, obviously, and my amazing work family, my two families, um, they're pretty special. We've now got um, a little quick fire round to end up on. So if you're ready, ready for the last bit. I'll give it my best. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, Scrabble or chess? Scrabble. Monopoly or Cluedo? Monopoly. Minimalism or the avant-garde? Uh, a bit of both sorry a bit of both running or swimming running croissant or scrambled eggs scrambled eggs well I should have scrambled eggs but probably croissant scrambled eggs <laughs> diamonds or pearls diamonds sneakers or heels sneakers Catherine or Audrey Hepburn um, Audrey grunge or glamour grunge probably <laughs> Coffee or sun lotion? Coffee or sun lotion? That's kind of random. <laughs> Your candles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so it's quite binary, that, isn't it? I really yeah. need both of those right now. Um, oh, uh, the smell of sun lotion and the uh, eyes of coffee. If that makes any sense <laughs> to any of our candle followers. <laughs> Crossbody or tote? Uh, both, one inside the other. Dairy milk or Mars bar? Dairy milk. Brilliant. Anya, thank you so, so much for coming on Get Under. Um, I think you're all mad. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Get Undressed, the podcast brought to you by Dressed, the world's first luxury styling game, which is available to download now from the App Store. And if you enjoyed this episode, Don't forget to subscribe to Get Undressed via your preferred podcast platform.